Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening to those of you here as well. We're, uh, we're in a time season right now, the season of Lent. And as part of that time and part of this passage coming out at us tonight, I want to talk a little bit about time. Um, if you're in an older generation, you may feel like time is going too quickly. And if you're of a younger generation, you might think time is going too slowly. And then there's also ways that time is significant, right? Uh, it, it could be the right time, even today, uh, Karen was at work doing this, uh, putting um, fertilizer on your lawn, right? It's the right time for that. If you're 10 years old, it's not the right time to start driving a car. Um, and we go back and forth between things that are the right time to do something, things that are not the right time to do something. If you have concert tickets and the concert's not till next week, it's not the right time to show up at the event today. Like, right, we, we live in this kind of understanding of time as something that's in and a, and a, a way that we live into something. And it's also a time where we, we understand that it's something we kind of walk through in a different way. Jesus, throughout the whole Gospel of John, is saying it's not time. In John chapter 2, when Mary says to him, hey, they ran out of wine at this event, in verse 4, excuse me for a second, in verse 4, Jesus says, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And then in chapter 7, his brothers say to him, Hey, are you going up to this festival? And then Jesus said in verse 6 of chapter 7, Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. And for you, any time will do. And then in verse 30, he's asked, uh, he, he cries out about how he is the light and when he's teaching in the temple, they try to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And then last thing, in chapter 8, verse 20, he spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put, yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. So we have things where it is the right time to do something, and then there are times when it's not the right time. Suddenly, Jesus, in chapter 12, as we heard just a moment ago, says, the hour has come. Now it's time. Well, how did we get here? Like, where, how, did, how did all this happen? Where, where did this come from? But be, before we talk about that, though, and look at the story in more detail, I want to just give you a brief introduction to the way that time is thought of in the mind of a Greek person, but also in our, the way we use it as well. Think about this for a minute. The, the, the word where Jesus says here, the hour has come, or when he said to Mary, my hour has not yet come, that's simply the word hour, like it's, you know, a little bit after six right now. So it's that hour. That's the word that's being used here. Jesus says the hour has come. But also there was a word in Greek, that, that's the word or, H-O-R-A. It sounds very similar to hour. There's also another word, and that was the word chronos. And that's like telling time. Like that's, 
days and weeks and months and hours and minutes and seconds. That would be the, the way that we would refer to time and just things happening around throughout a day. But then they also had another word, and that was kairos. And kairos time meant a very opportune moment, like, like a moment that you had to seize. We've been looking at Romans chapter 5, right? And we've been highlighting verse 8. But I just want to highlight right before that, in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, Paul says this, You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. At just the right time. That's kairos. That's exactly the right moment. It's interesting how this all dovetails together, isn't it? That, that these references and these thoughts come together in a way that helps us to say, oh, okay, this is a significant thing. So Jesus says, my hour has come. So our question is, how did he get here? Nothing, and, and, and throughout the scriptures, these stories don't happen in a vacuum. And so what we need to sort of do is back up a tiny bit. So this is chapter 12. We started with verse 20. Remember what happened in chapter 11. Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. And that caused all kinds of uproar and all kinds of consternation from the leadership. And then the next thing that happens after raising Lazarus from the dead is that Jesus is anointed at a dinner at Lazarus' home. He's anointed with oil or with um, spice perfume. It would have smelled amazing. Just think about that for just a second, just a little side rabbit, little rabbit trail here. Jewish people didn't bathe like the Romans. You know, they had baths and things. So if Jesus was anointed, poured oil all over him, this strong-smelling perfume, right before the triumphal entry, think about how he smelled the entire last week of his life. Our sense of smell is powerful. Brings memories and connections. I just think of all the people he interacted with anytime they would have smelled that perfume in any other context, immediately it would have reminded them. And that would have included the soldiers who beat him, Pilate. I mean, I'm getting a little bit ahead on the story, but just think for a minute about that. But that's what happened afterwards. So Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he's anointed at this dinner. The next thing that happens is a triumphal entry, and there's all kinds of, you know, activity and praise, and if you're a Pharisee, chaos and concern, like what's going on. In fact, verse 19, which we didn't read because we started with verse 20, says this, so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look, the whole world has gone after him. They're concerned. Everything's shaken. Everything's changed. And now some Greeks appear on the scene. It's interesting to, to note that, that in this uh, kind of mindset of a Jewish person, essentially there were Jewish people and Greeks. And Greeks was everyone else. And so this, these people could have been any nationality. It just They had come to worship at the festival in Jerusalem. But they were likely people who had not grown up, well, obviously they were not people who had grown up Jewish, and they were part of kind of a response to a, a Jewish faith. They'd come to the temple, 
and they want to see Jesus. John has so many interesting word choices that weave throughout the entire gospel. One of the way, one of the words, and we looked at this last week as well, the word see in John is often shorthand for believe. And so by these people saying to, to uh, Philip, and why Philip? I'll answer that question in just a second. But when they come up and they say, we want to see Jesus, it, it for John has much deeper meaning than I can see you right now, or I can see you in the screen. It, it's a very much of a deeper meaning of believe. We want to walk. We want to, we want to see because we believe. Why did they ask Philip? You know, I, I read through a number of commentaries and references today, and basically people are saying, we're not sure. Philip is a Greek name, but how would they know? He didn't have a name tag. I was like, hi, my name is Philip, you know? <laughs> so how did the people, you know, these Greek people know that? Uh, here's my thought. This is just me. It's not in any commentary. This is just my thought about Philip. What we do know about Philip is later on, he's the person, the first person in Acts chapter 8, to go to the nation or the area of Samaria to share the gospel. He's also the Philip that connected with the Ethiopian eunuch. And I wonder if, this is again, just my own wondering, if Philip was the person in the, in the group of disciples who noticed people. You know those kind of people, right? People who notice the hurting, people who notice the outsiders, people who notice those that are a little bit on the fringe. I wonder if if Philip saw these people and they're kind of, you know, looking over and talking, and I wonder if he actually approached them. Because it appears later in his life, he's that kind of person. You won't find that. I just, I'm just wondering out loud about Philip, because no one else has, has a good theory of why they actually went to Philip. The interesting thing as we kind of continue through the story is that, is that they come to Philip. Philip, Philip grabs Andrew, they go to Jesus, and when they say to Jesus, you know, these people want to see you, Jesus, to go back to Nate's sermon a couple weeks ago, Jesus totally pivots and starts off on this sort of launches into a story, right? Like, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground, it has, we know nothing more about whether these Greek people got to see Jesus. We don't know the time frame. Again, when we read scripture, we often feel like it just all happened in one, like, moment, right? Well, this could have rolled out over 20 minutes, and a few things could have happened that we don't, we don't see, but when we read it, we think this, then this, then this, then this. So again, we don't know whether those people actually met Jesus or not. But what we do know is that as Jesus is asked the question, he begins to say a little bit more. But Jesus says, the hour has come. The hour has come. What does that mean? Well, Jesus says the hour has come to be glorified. I don't know about you, and maybe this is just my upbringing, my story, my life, but glory, righteousness, those are kind of those Bible words that I never really, like, really have a great definition for. I don't know if you do. I, like, I think, oh, yeah, glory. Yeah, glory. I sing it. Glory, glory. But, like, what does that mean? Glory. And, and um, so I want to just kind of dive a little bit. But I actually have, I, I have an artifact that I can show people. This is a typed on typewriter paper that I wrote in college. And it's called Glory in the Fourth Gospel. So here's the answer if you want to know. 
you can look at my paper afterwards, um, which I got an A on, by the way, just, just saying. Um, the point that I made in the paper and that I think we're seeing here is that for John, glory, as ironic and crazy and un, like just does not make sense, glory in this case is Jesus on the cross. Like glory is Jesus' death. As we sang in the very first song, I see Jesus on the cross. Like that for John is glory. So when Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, he's not, he's saying, like, it's the cross. That's where they're headed. And and so when you think about glory, I mean, in a human term, it could be like winning a big event. I was thinking of kind of athletics, you know, the winning the Super Bowl, or you're the fastest person in the world, you know, you, you win glory. But then I thought, okay, but glorified would be a long-term thing. So love him or hate him, Tom Brady as quarterback, like there's glory in his experience over the years. Usain Bolt, year upon year, winning the 100 meters. Like there's, there's a sense of longevity and movement into a space rather than a one-time event. So as Jesus is saying, I'm going to be glorified, he's talking about a, a state, an experience, a longer-term place but it's also a sense of an an event and so in John the cross even here on this side and remember we read it backwards right we're like oh yeah of course Jesus gets raised from the dead we know that put yourself in Jesus and the disciples shoes right this moment in this story before the cross and Jesus says it's time it's time for me to be glorified And later, as he says, I'll be lifted up. We know he knows that he's heading toward the cross. This just a shocking kind of way of thinking about it. Well, what else is it time for? What else is it time for? It's time for this idea of the grain of wheat, that death brings life. And the thing I was thinking about, and obviously we live in an area where wheat is abundant, you plant one kernel and it grows into multiple, right? Like it, there's that multiplication process that happens with one seed, with corn, with wheat, with other crops that, that are just in an incredible kind of image that Jesus says. So it's time for that. Jesus also says, as we've heard read, it's time for those who love their life to give up their life. It's, it was, that's spelled out way more and we've had messages on that in the synoptics, this idea of love and giving, sacrificing our life, giving our life, that we've heard numerous times, but here in John is where that is spelled out. It's a time of service. Whoever serves me must follow me. It's a time of giving in those ways. And then finally, it's a time of judgment, like the prince of the world is cast down. And did you notice toward the end, Um, He says, now is the time for judgment. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Again, he's pointing to this Kairos moment, that this is significant. This time is significant. It's time for him to be lifted up. We've heard that last week where Jesus met with Nicodemus 
And in talking with him and sharing with him, Jesus uses that same phrase. I'll be lifted up. It draws back to that story in Numbers, in Numbers chapter 21 with the poisonous serpents and lifting up this, this uh, image of a serpent on a pole and how that would heal. And yeah, that's not the passage for this night. I'd, that's a very interesting and bizarre story. But Jesus twice now, last week's message in John chapter 3, now here in John chapter 12, refers to being lifted up. Referring again back to that place. The three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all have an experience where Jesus, after the Last Supper, goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember that? And he prays. It says that he goes away, takes Peter, James, and John. You may remember they fall asleep numerous times, depending on which version you're looking at. And Jesus cries out with groans, with pain, with sorrow, like the Hebrews passage that we heard tonight. This experience is spelled out here in verse 22, sorry, 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. I'll read the next part in a second. Here is Gethsemane in John, whereas the other three Gospels have this experience of Jesus wrestling in the garden. And I don't mean that this is the garden. I'm saying for John and John's gospel, this is the moment where Jesus has that same heart to heart with God. You know, is this the moment? Should I be, you know, should I pray to be saved from it? Should I pray to be freed from that? No, no, I won't, he says. It was for this very reason. Christmas, the baby in the manger, here he is, Jesus saying, it is for this reason that I came. I'm here because of this. And then he brings it up again. Father, glorify your name. And then God speaks, not at the baptism in John, not at uh, a transfiguration moment, like again, we heard just a few weeks ago, shared, in, in, uh, shared here in a sermon. But God speaks when Jesus is on his way to the cross. It says, then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd there heard it and said it was thunder. Others said an angel had spoken. And Jesus said it was for your benefit that this came. It was for your benefit. It's all wrapped up in glory. In Isaiah, he talks about the, this idea of being lifted up. Isaiah 52, verse 13, that the Son of Man will be lifted up. It's the same word. It's exalted. So again, John is wanting us to know that the cross, as, as crazy as this is, if we think about the suffering, the death, the humility, the, the brutality of the cross, it's a throne. It's a throne. And it just... It's so hard to wrap our minds around. Both Jesus and God agree that this is a place of glory. So the time has come, Jesus says. It's a Kairos moment. It is now. It's happening. It's, it's here. This is the time. So, so what do we do with that story and with this example? I was thinking that, you know, 
as much as we maybe are tired of it, <laughs> this is a Kairos moment. The last year, I don't know how many times I've heard the word unprecedented. I've never experienced this in my lifetime. And I think, yeah, buddy, you're like 20 years old. Sure, okay. Um, you know, or whatever. Sorry, if you're 20, I'm not trying to mock you. Um, but how many times have we all heard that, right? Like everybody's saying that. It, this, this is a Kairos moment for our planet. And what does that mean for us? The world is being reshapen. We're longing for what it was. I, I, I am too. We long for how things were. But just like, actually, Nathan, thank you so much for reading that poem and sharing what you did at the beginning. Just like Dante had to go down <laughs> in order to go up, Jesus, in a sense, he keeps saying the cross is his glory, right? But come on, if any one of us was going to a cross, we would certainly not see that as a step up. We would see that as a step down. We're in this moment where we are in a place where we are struggling and hurting and in pain. Do we see it as a Kairos moment? And do we see it as a place where suffering can lead to life? And, and I don't have the, I mean, I don't know what that life will look like. And truly, did Jesus, did the disciples I also think about the Greeks asking that question. We want to see Jesus. We, uh, we have a friend, and he, he was a pastor of a church my parents attended in Oakhurst in California. And on, his, on the podium, on the platform, um, I noticed this, and I, I asked him one time. He had stuck on the podium, like, you know, typed out and taped down, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And every day when he would, you know, get up on a Sunday morning to get ready to preach, that would be his like a you know reminder to him that as a pastor that's the mess like he he should be showing people Jesus so how are we doing that how am i doing that how's the church either the big church or our church doing that in this day and age and i think sometimes if jesus is glory if jesus is seen in the way we live our lives I know sometimes for me, the conviction of this verse in, in verse 25, those who love their life will lose it. I think I love my life and that hides Jesus. That hides Jesus' glory because I'm too concerned about myself. I'm too concerned about caring for my own self and hiding my own life. And that's a challenge. How do we find a way to bring him out into the light? And how do we bring Jesus to people so that the Greeks, all the outsiders, how do we as a church open our doors to bring people to Jesus? The cool thing about the other passage from Jeremiah that we heard tonight is that his law is in our heart, right? The Holy Spirit lives within us. I think sometimes it's easier than we give, like we make it harder. It's, it's interesting, I have a, a whole shelf of evangelism books at work and almost all of them without exception talk about, like in the title, it's something about how hard evangelism is. Evangelism made slightly less difficult. 
um, evangelism for dummies, evangelism. Like it's, it's like we already think about how we share in a way that is negative. And yet, it could be just as simply as, sir, we want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. How do we live that out? I think finally for me, the, the challenge is about how I think about time. Referring again to another Kairos or this, a Kairos moment, Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 5, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Making the most of every opportunity, being very careful, being wise, living in a way that takes stock of our time and who we are. I know we hear a lot, and, and uh, I know I've heard it many times from Mike Clifford quoting Dallas Willard that we are always being shaped and formed. The way we spend our time is shaping us. And again, because we hear that all the time, maybe the, the power of that doesn't always strike us. But the first time I really realized that, I thought, oh my goodness. I thought like being formed in the way of God was like when I would come to church or when I would do my 20 minutes of devotional time in the morning. And I didn't really think about the rest of the time. By focusing and thinking about time and in this passage and thinking about kind of how, how the, the kairos, the precise moments, but also the chronos, the way I live my days, it challenges me to think about how do I walk in the light all the time? Not just when it's convenient, not just when I'm doing my, my, you know, my devotional, but all the time. One of the things that I've practiced, and I'm sure we all have done different things over this last year to help kind of restore ourselves and live, uh, is that I've really tried to be just more mindful and present in the moments. Um, and that just means when, when I think about it, I think, ooh, yes, I live in this moment. Sometimes that's through being reminded by my watch to breathe. But it's just a way that I try to help live now because my bent is to live in the future. I know some people's bent is to live in the past. My bent's to live in the future. But the only moments we have, the only time we have is like right now. Because even when I started talking 15, 20 minutes ago, that's gone. It's past. We just have now. So how are we living for now? How are we living in this? Because really, every moment is a Kairos moment. Every moment is significant as we live in that way.